0: Chapter Seven, Part One of the Making of a Nation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Making of a Nation: The Beginnings of Israel's History by Charles Foster Kent. Chapter Seven, Part One. A Nation's Struggle for a Home and Freedom. Israel's Victory Over the Canaanites. Joshua Two through Nine. Judges 1, 4, and 5. Parallel Readings Historical Bible 2, 1-4, 1 Principle of Politics 10 That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people volunteered readily, blessed Jehovah. Zebulun was a people who exposed themselves to deadly peril, and Naphtali on the heights of the open field. Kings came, they fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo, they took no booty of silver. From heaven fought the stars. From their courses fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. That ancient river, the river Kishon. O oh, my soul, march on with strength. When did the horse hooves resound with the galloping galloping of their steeds? Judges 5, nine eighteen through 22 Historical Bible. This was King Arthur's dream. Him thought that there was coming into his land many griffins and serpents, and him thought that they brent and slew all the people in the land, and then him thought that he fought with them, and they did him passing great damage and wounded him full sore, but at the last he slew them all. Mallory, History of King Arthur, Mort d'Arthur Young gentlemen, have a resolute life purpose. Don't get mad and don't get scared. Burleson 1. THE CROSSING OF THE JORDAN in the light of the preceding studies, the motives that led the Hebrews to cross the Jordan become evident. As the pilgrim fathers, to secure a home where they might enjoy and develop their own type of belief and methods of civilization, braved the dimly known dangers of the sea in the wilderness, the Hebrews braved the contests that unquestionably laid before them. Between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, the Jordan is fordable at thirty points during certain parts of the year the first of the two main fords in the lower jordan is just below the point where the wadi kelt enters the jordan from the west and deposits its mass of mud and silt the other ford is six miles further north below the point where the wadi nimrin comes down from the highlands of gilead here today, the main highway connecting the east and the west jordan country crosses the river this spot was probably the scene of the historic crossing at the beginning of hebrew history Certain writers hold that variant accounts of the most important facts in early Hebrew history have here been preserved. Traces of three different versions of the crossing of the Jordan may still, in their judgment, be found in the third and fourth chapters of the book of Joshua. The latest and most familiar narrative represents the crossing as a superlative miracle and the waters of the rushing river as piled up like a wall on either side. The northern Israelite version appears to have stated that the waters of the Jordan were dried up Implying that the Hebrews crossed during the late summer when the river was easily fordable, the earliest narrative, the Judean prophetic, states that quote, the waters rose up in a heap a great way off at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan, and those that went down toward the Sea of the Araba, the salt sea, were wholly cut off. Unquote, Joshua 3:16b. From other references in the Old Testament, it would appear that the city of Adam, which means red earth is today represented by the ruins of Ed Damier, which stands near the famous Damier Ford at the point where the river Jabuk enters the Jordan. It is interesting to note in this connection that a reliable Muslim historian states that in the year 1257 AD, the retreating Muslims found it necessary to repair the foundations of an important bridge which stood at this point. When the workmen arrived on the scene, They were amazed to find the riverbed empty, and were able by working rapidly to complete the repairs before the waters came rushing down. This remarkable phenomenon seemed to them to be due to the direct intervention of Allah. But the historian fortunately records the cause. It was a huge landslide a little further up the river, which temporarily dammed its waters. The oldest biblical account of the crossing of the Jordan may point to a like natural cause. If this be true, does it imply that Jehovah had no part in preparing the way for the future conquests of his people? Would a miracle such as that recorded in the late priestly tradition be any stronger proof of God's presence and activity in human history than are the provisions which we today call natural? 2. The Canaanite Civilization. Contemporary inscriptions and recent excavations make it possible to form a very definite conception of conditions in Canaan when the Hebrews crossed the Jordan. The dominant civilization was that of the Canaanites, the descendants of the Semitic invaders from the desert who entered Palestine centuries before the ancestors of the Hebrews. Naturally, they settled first along the fertile coast plains that skirt the western Mediterranean. In later times, these were known as the Phoenicians. As the population increased, the Canaanites pushed their outposts along the broad valleys that penetrated the uplands of Palestine. These valleys were especially fertile and attractive in the territory later known as Galilee and Samaria. The wide plain of Israelin and its eastward extension, the valley of Jezreel, cut straight across the central plateau of Palestine. The plain of Israelin was the strongest center of the Canaanite civilization. A few outposts were established in the Jordan Valley, as for example, Laish, later known as Dan, at the foot of Mount Hermon, and Jericho at the southern end of the Jordan Valley. Only a few Canaanite villages were found along the more barren hills of southern Canaan. There the peoples and civilization still retained the imprint of their desert origin. Along the coast plains and across the great plain of Israelin ran the main highways that connected the three earliest and most nourishing centers of the world's civilization, the Egyptian on the southwest, the Amorite on the north, probably between the southern Lebanons, and the Babylonian to the east and northeast. For centuries the Canaanites had absorbed the ideas, institutions, and culture of these stronger peoples. So fundamentally had the Babylonians impressed the Canaanites that practically all of the inscriptions coming from this early period are written in the Babylonian script. Even in writing to their Egyptian conqueror during the fourteenth century, the Canaanite kings of Palestine used this same Babylonian system of writing. The Amorite civilization had so strongly influenced the Canaanites That today it is difficult for the archaeologist to distinguish between the two. By certain of the biblical writers, the terms Canaanite and Amorite are used interchangeably. As early as 1600 BC, Egypt, under the ambitious conquering kings of the 18th dynasty, had overrun Palestine and for the next three or four centuries ruled it as a tributary province. The nearness of Egypt made its influence still more powerful, so that in nearly every mound and Canaanite ruin the excavator finds hundreds of reminders of the presence of the Egyptian civilization. The Canaanites had long since left behind them the nomadic state and had developed a strong agricultural and commercial civilization. Their life centered about certain important cities, like Megiddo on the southwestern side and Beth-Shean on the eastern side of the plain of Estralin. Their cities were usually built on a low-lying hill in the midst of rich encircling plains. They were provided with thick mud walls behind which the inhabitants felt secure from attack. Over each city ruled a petty king, whose authority, however, did not extend far beyond the surrounding fields that belonged to the inhabitants of the town. Generally, these city-states were independent. In many cases, they were hostile to each other, and the long rule of Egypt had tended to intensify this hostility, for Egypt had depended upon this local jealousy to maintain its control. The diversified physical contour of Palestine likewise strengthened this tendency toward separation rather than unity. This type of political organization favored a growth of polytheism rather than the worship of one god. Each city had its local god or Baal, which was worshipped at a high place either within the city or on some adjacent height, while in the larger cities, elaborate altars and temples were reared to them. These local deities were regarded as the gods of fertility which gave to their worshippers ample harvests and numerous offspring, both of the family and of the nak. The principle of generation occupied such an important place in the Canaanite cults, that in time they became exceedingly immoral and debasing. To secure the favor of their gods, the Canaanites brought rich sacrifices to their altars, and observed certain great annual festivals with ceremonies very similar to those later adopted by the Hebrews. While the Canaanites were on a much higher plane of material civilization than the Hebrews, they ultimately fell a prey of those hardy invaders of the desert, one, because they were incapable of strong united action, and two, because their civilization was corrupt and enervating. Courage and real patriotism were almost unknown to them, even as early as the 17th century B.C., when the Egyptian king Thutmose III invaded the land of Palestine. Their strong walls and their superior military equipment, however, made their immediate conquest by the Hebrews impossible. This explains why the earliest account of the initial conquest, now found in Judges 1, is chiefly devoted to recounting the strong Canaanite cities which the Hebrews failed to conquer. 3. The Capture of the Outposts of Palestine In the light of our present knowledge of the Canaanite civilization, it becomes evident why most of the early Hebrew conquests were in the south. The only large Canaanite city which they could conquer in the early days was Jericho. Recent excavations have also shown why later generations regarded its capture by the Hebrews as a miracle, although many modern interpreters hold that the early account does not imply that it was by supernatural means. Like most of the Canaanite cities, it was situated on a slightly rising eminence, close to the foothills that on the west rose abruptly to the central plateau of Canaan. Northward, eastward, and southward extended for miles the level plain of the Jordan River, which plowed its way through its alluvial bed six miles east of Jericho. Close by the site of the ancient city came the perennial waters of the Wadi Kelt, with which it was possible to irrigate its fields. Past the town ran the main highway from across the Jordan, along the northern side of the Wadi Kelt, to join the great central highway that extended through the center of Palestine. Jericho was, therefore, the key to the land of Canaan, and its capture was necessary if the Hebrews were to maintain their connection with their kinsmen east of the Jordan. The ruins of the ancient Canaanite town rise between forty and fifty feet above the plain. It is an oblong mound containing altogether about twelve acres. The excavations have disclosed a large part of the encircling wall. It was a construction of excellent workmanship, which still stands practically intact, testifying to the accuracy of the early Hebrew tradition. Its foundation is a wall of rubble sixteen feet high and six to eight feet thick, sloping inward. On the top of this foundation, which rested on the native rock, was built a supplemental wall of burnt brick, six or seven feet in thickness, and rising even now in its ruined condition, on an average eight feet above the lower wall. Thus, the original wall must have towered between twenty and thirty feet above the plain. At the northern end of the city stood the citadel, made of unburnt brick, three stories high. Even the stone staircase which led to the top is still intact. According to these investigators, the late tradition that these walls fell flat to the earth as the result of a miracle finds no confirmation in the ruins themselves. The older Hebrew account, however, in their judgment, agrees perfectly with the evidence revealed by the spade of the excavator. In imagination, it is easy to follow the perilous journey of the Hebrew spies, and to appreciate the importance of the negotiations by which they secured the cooperation of Rahab, and of the clan within Jericho which he represented. Later come the Hebrew hordes from across the Jordan, bearing with them the ark, which symbolized to them the presence of Jehovah who had led them on to victory in many an early battle. Behind their impregnable walls, the inhabitants of Jericho must have laughed scornfully at the desert host that seemed utterly incapable of an effective attack or of a protracted siege. According to many modern interpreters, the earliest Hebrew host marched silently about the Canaanite stronghold. At first the inhabitants of Jericho, accustomed to Arab strategy, undoubtedly held themselves ready for defense. When no attack came, their vigilance was gradually relaxed. At last on the seventh day, when conditions were favorable at the preconceived signal, a trumpet blast, the Hebrews rushed toward the walls, the gates were probably opened by their allies within the city, and Jericho was quickly captured. The method of attack recorded in the prophetic narrative was very similar to the strategy used a little later by the Hebrews in the capture of the smaller towns of Ai and Bethel. They are the methods still employed by the Bedouins in their attacks upon the outposts of Palestine. The fierce nomadic instincts of these early Hebrew warriors are revealed by the fate which they visited upon Jericho and its inhabitants. The recent excavations confirm the biblical testimony that for several centuries after its initial capture the ancient town was left a heap of ruins. Its inhabitants were slain as a great sacrificial offering to Jehovah whose true character as one who loves all mankind was first appreciated by the inspired prophets of a much later era. From the plain of Jericho two or three roads led up to the central plateau of Canaan. The main road along the Wadi Kelt ran past the villages of Ai and Bethel. At most they were small towns and easily captured. Along this highway went the Hebrew tribes later known as the Ephraimites and Manassites. The other roads led through the wilderness southwestward to the heart of Judah the frontier town of Bezek, mentioned in the ancient narrative of Judges, has not yet been identified. The name is perhaps but a scribal corruption of Bethlehem or of Bethsur further to the south. The other towns ultimately captured by the southern tribes were Hebron, with its copious water supply, Debir to the southwest, and Arad and Hormah, which lay on the borders of the south country. The capture of these six or seven outposts represents the first stage in the conquest and settlement of Palestine. It was significant because it meant that the people from the wilderness had gained a foothold in the land where they ultimately found their home. It inaugurated Israel's pioneer period. The Hebrews were no longer homeless wanderers in the desert, nor sojourners in a foreign land. At this point Israel's history as a nation properly begins, Although the complete union of the tribes was not consummated until nearly a century later. End of chapter 7. Part 1